Well, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, thank you. And uh, God, has, God has given us two, two very, very special gifts right here. Two gifts, two hands. We've already shaken many other hands coming here this morning in the last uh, five, ten minutes, half hour. And they will also serve us in eating right hand or left hand, eating a lunch and a supper, enjoying a meal together. And God has designed them for applause. Applause. Now, my focus of applause, I am not seeing at the moment. Pastor Brent, where are you? Ah, okay. Way in the back. Okay. We need some good, sincere, uh, loud applause for a brand new experience uh, for me to enjoy a drum playing pastor. It's a gift that I especially enjoy because I still remember keenly, although it was years, 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 many, many years ago that uh, I was sent to a small church in uh, southwestern Michigan and asked to get my first uh, church service and first sermon. And the, uh, the vice president of the council, an elder at that time, uh, was supposed to approach me afterward. And if he enjoyed and liked what I had to say, he was allowed to shake my hand, otherwise he kept his hand in his pocket. Uh, but he sh- shook my hand, and after the service, uh, he said, this, the sermon was uh, pretty good. It was pretty good. I, I liked it. But, uh, you know, when you led worship a bit earlier in our service with uh, the hands and all the rest, when you led worship, you reminded me so much of a Dutch windmill with hiccups. <laughs> So, since then, I've really gravitated to churches that would like me to speak and do nothing else. (laughs) So, we'll continue our um, service on the ten words of God, the ten words of God. Uh, The seventh one is uh, on adultery. I had a chance uh, chance to share that and mention that and ask for prayer support with a number of uh, contacts, friends, some other pastors, including supper with one last night. And he said, oh, we'll pray for you. And uh, the general comment that accompanies the offer of uh, prayer is, uh, so you're speaking on adultery. Uh, The pastor must not like you very much. (laughs) So we're tackling the seventh commandment. And before we tackle the seventh one, I'm going to back up a little and suggest to you that a key aspect, a key aspect, a key feature of the Ten Commandments is geography. I'm not sure if that ever occurred to you, but geography is a very central and significant, important part of the Ten Words of God. Because he could have spoken them in Goshen, 
But instead, he spoke them six weeks later from the heights of uh, Mount Sinai, deep in the Sinai Peninsula. Six weeks separation. If he had spoken them in Goshen, I could easily see the response and the interpretation. Um, here's the ten words, and uh, if you guys if you guys do well, we'll give you we'll give you about a year. If you do well, and I'll be watching and evaluating. There's a score sheet here, and uh, see how you do on the ten words that I am communicating to you in Goshen. And if you do reasonably well on eight or, let's say, nine, ideally, of the ten, I'm not expecting perfection here, but if you do reasonably well for a year on eight or nine commandments, then um, I'll see what I can do about that Red Sea for you. That's the way all other religions in the world would have run this story. Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, Hinduism, all other six. A year, eight or nine, and then we'll see out of what I can do about the Red Sea. But instead, to me, the most significant part of Exodus 20, which you've been living with for the last several weeks, is the introduction. I wouldn't say number one or two or five or ten. I would say the most significant part that I'd ask you to memorize and get deep into the soil of your soul is I am the Lord your God, not I will be if, but I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage or slavery. I have set you free, past tense, and now six weeks later, and he thunders from the top of Sinai and the people are in, in fright, they're behind a barrier, Moses communicates to them, and uh, he said, here's God suggesting to you ten ways that you can say thank you to him for the deliverance that he has already granted to you. You are saved. You are delivered. Your anchor of security is tossed not in the future, cross fingers, but it's in the past. He has set you free. And now six weeks later, here's ten, uh, yeah, ten ways that you can say, thank you, I'm grateful to you, Lord. And in these ten ways, you can live out a gratitude response to the Lord. Very, very critical and very important difference. Jesus summarized these ten laws in the uh, New Testament with uh, two laws on one coin, one coin with two sides, if you like, a heads and a tails, Love for God, the first four, and love for the neighbor, anyone who, anyone who crosses your path. The neighbor that you've known the best, your mom and your dad, your mom and your dad, you all have a mom and a dad. That's your first neighbor. That's commandment five. Anyone else that has life is breathing, walking, talking. That's the second one, commandment number six. And now in the most close and special relationship, that you want to develop and grow and not mess around with this one is with their husband or their wife. So mom and dad, honor life and then honor the life that you share in a different way from anyone else on creation with someone called a husband or a wife, as we say to our audiences in Africa, 
the only relationship that will be ended and concluded by a coffin. The only thing that ends with a coffin. Because I hope you're not lying when you say in front of church you're dressed in black and you're dressed in white and you face each other and you don't even remember what you said. But what you said is, until death do us part. A coffin will end this relationship. Nothing else should. Nothing else should. Now, I want to approach this commandment a little bit differently, a little bit differently than perhaps you're used to. It's very tempting to say, well, uh, let's take a hedge or a fence around a special piece of property, a spacious, attractive, colorful property with uh, all kinds of vegetables that you can uh, cut up with color and different kinds of taste for a decent salad for lunch today. Uh, an apple tree, a pear tree, a mango tree, delicious stuff to eat for a snack in between. Uh, but watch out for the fence and don't get curious about what is beyond the fence and how do you get through the fence, how do you get through that hedge, what is the most vulnerable spot to do it, and of course, if you're smart, if you want to explore because you're curious what it's like on the other side of that piece of property that God has designed and prepared for you, and you want to go beyond, you know that there's some possible weak spots in the hedge that you want to explore, and hey, if you're smart, you'll do it at night. You'll do it at night. Because less people will see you, less people will spread the word about you, and less people will criticize you and make sure that you get punished for uh, violating God's command suggestion to you. So you do it, you do it at night. I'm not going to focus on that so much this morning because my argument is that uh, if you properly take care of and learn three skills inside that uh, field, that uh, garden, if you like, with the fruits and the vegetables and stuff that you don't know that Asians and Africans eat, and all the delight and all the variety, if you focus on that and you develop three three skills, they're called learning leaving skills, learning cleaving skills, and learning weaving skills. If you learn leaving, cleaving, and weaving skills, those three, and I'm going to add in a special addendum, a special footnote, if you like, for uh, young people. That comes at the end. But if you focus on that and you say, I'm going to commit to that, I'm going to do what the scripture appears to say to us, to me, then adultery, wandering outside the fence, is not going to be an issue or a difficult problem for you. It just won't. And that's a pretty good promise. Adultery will not be an issue hounding you, nipping at your heels, uh, just occupying the space in your head. It's there constantly to meet you on the Internet. And all kinds of specific practical habits, like if these temptations come and if uh, the attraction is a challenge, a real challenge for you, uh, be smart most of you are smarter than you think. And when you go to your office, make sure that the computer in your desk in your office does not face the end window 
but it faces the door. See, it faces the window. You see a friend come in who wants to chat with you and share a cup of coffee, and you quick hit delete. And he doesn't know what's on your screen. But if it faces the door, he knows immediately what you're looking at. And, uh, you know, this particular friend, he's going to spread the word. The whole office will know. So find some smart ways to use your computer. Okay? And uh, we're going to talk about some positive habits of uh, leaving, cleaving, and weaving that you can develop in that whole fence where two things are valued and two things can be uh, can be uh, daily and in every situation can be practiced. And that is a friendship without sex. We can call it uh, singleness, if you like. And a friendship with sex. We call that marriage. Friendship without sex, singleness, and a friendship with sex, marriage. The two basic relationships that are there in the garden that God very carefully guards with a strong fence and a very attractive but unmistakable hedge. It says, don't go beyond this. You're going to be the one that suffers. So, learning leaving skills, first of all. So learning leaving skills, that's the first thing to learn. Your first gift to you are two sets of parents, two sets of parents. He has one, she has one. There's four people that ought to be your great and stubborn allies against adultery. Your allies against adultery. And you can make two mistakes with your in-laws. I've long intended with the 30, 35 people that I've married, it doesn't always work out at all. But I thought, get the two together for the counseling sessions. I do six, one a month for six months. So six months of counseling. And I say, the last one, I want to see your parents, and I want to see your parents. And then the six of us, and Kathy and I, eight of us, are going to talk together. And you're going to tell them, what kind of space do I want for mom and dad? and mom and dad in the relationship that we're starting today or starting next week. And the young couple has a chance to say to mom and dad, you know, we're leaving. We're leaving. And here is our wish, here's our hope, here's our dream. And what they want to do is avoid, most of them, they want to avoid uh, too close, living too close, where mom and, uh, or mom-in-law and uh, dad, dad-in-law, are living in the same house under the same roof, unless you have to, God forbid. Unless you have to, God forbid. I'm 99% sure that God did not design two women to live in the same kitchen. <laughs> two women are not in the same kitchen. So you can be too close with a lot of comments, a lot of observation, and they're still parents. But they're around not to criticize but to consult. They're not there to criticize, they're to consult. Or the other extremes, they live so far away that you see them quite rarely and you really mess up. The relationship doesn't get hot and burned, but uh, it gets cold and frozen. Because they're so far away, you see mom and dad just once a year and you love the company, you love the way they uh, wrap up your little boys and girls and they bring special presents for them, spend time with them, take them out so mom and dad can have a break. But as we say, we'd like it if you could come more often. 
And most marriages say, well, we'd like to see more of this one and perhaps a bit less of this one, right? A bit more of this one, a bit less of this one, and just that right, the right distance. Kathy was teaching this in a church in uh, Cameroon in the middle of Africa, and uh, she was translated into pidgin English. And uh, the speaker heard Kathy say, and he said, well, what uh, our speaker just said is that uh, if you get too close and you feel hemmed in and you feel limited by mom and dad who always have advice and counsel, why don't you try this? Why don't you do that? Uh, if you have parents like that, in no time at all, you be firewood. You be firewood. So you can be too hot or too cold, too hot or too cold in that relationship. Just the right space for mom and dad, and they can be a great assistance, great support in uh, keeping adultery far, far away from you. Because they're there to support and to help and to advise, suggest a movie to see, a book to read. And if they're not as helpful, there are ways to address that as well, because the final court of appeal is not his parents or her parents, but it's you, the new marriage. Okay? Now, the second one is to learn to cleave, learning leaving, leaving skills, cleaving skills and learning cleaving skills. The word cleave is very interesting. It's an ancient word. It's uh, King James uses it. It's a rare, rare English word. And what's of interest to me that cleaving is reserved for marriage only. It is not applied ever in any situation in 66 books of the Bible to men, your job. Thou shalt not cleave to thine boss. And it doesn't apply to children either. Ladies, moms, you shall cleave, cleave, cleave to your children, to your boys and girls, age 2 and 5 and 15 and so on. Never says that. Never says that. You cleave to your husband, you cleave to your wife, and no one and nothing else. So your job is secondary. Your children, your family, your children and your family are secondary. So if you reflect on that, as I hope you'll do this next week, if your boss demands more time or fellow colleagues at work demand more time that you stay until 6, 7, 7.30 to plan the next party, and it's always the next party, and uh, you don't come home until 7, 8 o'clock at night uh, with construction in Montreal. You get home at 9 or 10. Uh, you come home very, very late, and supper's already done, and half of your kids are in bed. And you say, this needs to change. Honey, how are we going to change this? And the same thing is true for both men and women, but especially women, it seems more so for uh, and a preoccupation with children so that uh, the husband is put on a side shelf and he's put on hold for a while until the children are grown up, grown up more responsible for themselves. And then until then, the children are number one. They're very demanding. They've got a lot of questions. And... Uh, I'll be candid with you and say that the greatest enemy of our early marriage in Africa, the years probably three to six or eight, three to six or eight of marriage were the hardest, the most challenging. Why? 
Why? Because we had four little people, seven and under, four of them, and they had four uh, hands, two hands each, so eight hands, and the hands are always, Mom, grabbing her attention. Mom, can you do this for me? Can you fix that? Mom, Mom, and she had hands all day, so when her number one priority, her number one commitment, say moi, that was me, and uh, when my hand would start traveling underneath the sheets at 10 o'clock at night, her, her response was very candid and very understandable, although I didn't understand it. She said, honey, all I need right now is one more hand. All I need is one more hand. And it was very, very hard stretch when she was so tired with four little people, even with an African domestic servant who helped us enormously. But the kids had all the attention, and she was tired by 9 o'clock at night. And I had to come to the point, some of you men will listen very closely to this, as well you should. There came a point where I said to her, okay, I see the pattern here, and I see that it's hard for you to change and to adjust. I see that. But what I want you to know, deep down, is that if we never have a sexual relationship again in this marriage, I'm not going to walk out on you. I shall not leave you. So if that's the end of that part of our relationship, I'm not going to walk out. I made the commitments, and it's until we both or one of us shall die. And I said, that's a hard thing to say, but, but I mean it. And then in the back of my mind, I kind of suspected that uh, the kids would grow up and the pattern would change a little bit in our marriage. <laughs> and it did. So, how do you develop cleaving skills? Cleaving skills, well, um, you spend time with each other. You learn how to communicate. Song of Solomon is beautiful this way. Uh, I love your eyes and I love your voice. Your voice is sweet and your eyes are lovely, 214. Love your eyes. Love your voice. Your eyes are sweet. Your voice is lovely. 214. That's in the courtship, in the early early section. He addresses her that way. And it's a very, very important thing. What I think Solomon is saying, men, if you're smart, and for too long I was not too smart, men, if you're smart, develop and work hard and grow some skills in strengthening and giving some uh, creativity and uh, new ideas to that little member above your chin. That little member above your chin, it's all of a half ounce. It's called the tongue. The tongue. And don't get so obsessed with that little member below your belt. Above your chin can make a difference in below your belt. Because 85% of all marriages that fail in separation or divorce, 52% in America, they'll say, we're not communicating very well anymore. We're not communicating at all. And so focus on this more than this, and this will come to life surprisingly. You'll be surprised. So 
cleaving, cleaving to each other. What we've tried to do, not always very successfully, but to have one weekend away every fall, one weekend away every spring. In the fall, we go to a familiar spot that we enjoy, that we love, take more pictures. And in the spring, we go to a different place, a new place, something familiar and something brand new. But a weekend here and a weekend here. And the agreement on the weekend, by the way, and this is where I anticipate a reaction of, <gasps> what? I get it. I understand it. But on these weekends away, sometimes it has to be a day away. Obviously, you agree in that time that you will not talk about your children and you will not talk about your work. You're not going to talk about your children. You're not going to talk about your work. You're going to talk about us. You're going to talk about us, about the two of you. Because you should not be surprised, I was, but you should not be surprised that around six, seven, eight years of marriage is the first spike in divorces. But the second caught me really off guard. The second spike in divorces, when most divorces happen in most countries most of the time, is one year after the last child leaves home. One year after the last child leaves home because they have their morning porridge or bacon and eggs, whatever, and they look at each other and decide that you know, Johnny and Susie are gone. They're off to a, a grad program somewhere in Toronto or Vancouver, uh, or they're off married somewhere in Calgary or Halifax. They're gone, and we lived our life through them, and there's nothing left between the two of us. We didn't invest and spend time with the two of us. And now we're looking at each other, and there's, there's nothing to say. And a lot of divorces happen, and 80% are led, initiated by women. That doesn't surprise me at all, and I can tell you why. You could probably tell me why. 80% are initiated by women who divorce in their mid to late 40s. So, learning, cleaving, cleaving skills. There's one surprise to me. I've known four pastors in the last uh, 20, 25, 20, 20, 25, 30 years or so, four pastors who got a little bored, perhaps, or uh, lack of zest, lack of adventure, lack of something different, something new, and they developed a very, very close friendship with someone, not their wife. And they spent a lot of time in planning the next uh, Sunday school program. Or they'd go out somewhere to a nice lake or the nice restaurant on the lake, and they would uh, discuss some counseling issues that had arisen in the church. And in all four cases, I, I know these men. In all four cases, I assure you, the pants stayed on. The pants stayed on, but they committed emotional adultery. And all four marriages failed, including... I don't think I'll mention the name, but the man who came up with the idea of seeker-friendly churches. Seeker-friendly churches. So for unbelievers and curiosity seekers, they were welcome on Sunday, and the church was stimulated and taught and helped on Wednesday night. A pastor in a major church north of Chicago. And he developed a friendship that was inappropriate. Was it sexual? No. But it was inappropriate. He spent far more time with this young lady than with his wife. And his council, his board, and one of the members of the, 
The former member of the board is a friend of mine in Colorado Springs. He's still there. He knows the pastor very well. And he said, this has to stop. And the pastor said, no, I'm not stopping it. So all 35 men on the board resigned. All 35. Your relationship is too special and precious for us. What you're modeling for this church of uh, 25,000 is not what we want to see modeled, and we cannot endorse this. We're sorry. And there's four cases like that that I know. Inappropriate relationships, stepping across the hedge into forbidden fruit territory. And the fruit looks good, the apples, the oranges, they they look good, but uh, hey, they'll poison you. So the third thing is learning weaving skills. Learning leaving, leaving skills, learning um, cleaving skills, and learning weaving skills. Leaving, cleaving, weaving. There is in Scripture a marriage act, not really a sex act, and it's something to be designed to develop and to grow and to get better over time. They shall become one flesh. It's a story of a process. You learn some things, you have to unlearn some things. Some things are, are painful, awkward, embarrassing, but you become, you become one flesh. And I love Moses for this. I love Moses for this. He didn't say, you shall become one heart, or you shall become one mind, or one game plan, or one aim in life together as husband and wife, walking hand in hand together into the future. No, Moses does not apologize. He says, you shall become one flesh. You shall become one flesh. He's talking about sex. Moses is comfortable with it a lot more than many of us are. I just remind you, and gently and kindly, that when it comes to areas of sex, God is the only one in our universe who does not blush. He's the only one that does not blush. He created, he knows what to to do with it, where to go with it. And uh, he says, hey, stay faithful, lots of practice, Lots of practice. And scripturally, I would argue, you can argue with me, but scripturally I would argue that for Christian sex, understood properly and practiced properly, it is supposed to be much better in the 50s and 60s than it is in the 20s or 30s. It's better in the 50s and 60s than in the 20s and 30s. Because by that time, the husband has won the hard fought battle of giving his wife what she needs so very much, security. Security. No matter how often I lose my temper, how difficult I am with the kids, how often I defend my mother, your mother-in-law, it doesn't matter. Um, You're sticking with me. You're staying with me. You're faithful. And I love you for it. And it's a gift of security that a man can give give to his wife. And uh, he rebukes, as he jolly well should, what I hear about young people nowadays, why should I buy the cow if I can get the milk for free? Why should I buy the cow if I can get the milk for free? An absolutely reprehensible attitude. Here's another interesting thing. We're being candid with each other, right? Um, 
I'll be leaving through this door and you, you, won't, you won't see me for a while. Uh, but it's very interesting that they've done some surveys, done a lot of surveys about marital sex among evangelical Christians. Marital sex, evangelical Christians. And two things that stood out for me in the study, Christianity Today, as I recall, two things that really stood out is that the, the man's expectation is uh, ideally, if I could express it, if I were comfortable with this, at least two or three times a week. Two or three times a week. Whereas most women responded and said, once a week is enough, it's plenty. Two or three for him, just one for her. And it is hardly ever discussed or spoken about. Are you wondering? You guess? You get these feelings of feeling deprived or misunderstood. What also is very interesting that 98% of the time when a sexual relationship is deemed this is a good time, a good place, uh, the kids are at a neighbor's house or a friend's house, this is a great time, and 98% of the time the husband initiates, not the wife. The husband initiates, not the wife. Which is very, very strange to me because a Ethiopian friend, Kathy and I taught in Ethiopia three years, and uh, they filled a room with 35, 45 students, future pastors. And Hank and Kathy, would you tell them 45 hours what you know about marriage? Tell them all you know about marriage. So after one week, a man raised his hand and said, Well, what about FGM? I said, Oh, that's, this is just right, just right. I've come here to share some things with you from the West, and you're teaching me some areas that I don't know. FGM, I haven't a clue. And he explained feminine genital mutilation. Feminine genital mutilation. And 40% of all the students in that college, or 330 students, had experienced it. Depriving a girl of the pleasure center so that she would stay loyal and not wander from home. So I said, he said, well, what does the Song of Solomon say about uh, FGM? I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to answer that just now, but you're going to answer it. Our last Friday together, when they usually have a closing song and a nice gift shirt and so on, and the last day I want you to tell me what you've learned about FGM from the Song of Solomon. So the final day he smiles and he sort of, he says, I studied the song, here's what I learned, Mr. Pot. here's what I learned. And it's in chapter 7, 11 to 14, in case you're skeptical. 7, 11 to 14. The girl initiates sex or lovemaking. And secondly, she enjoys it. She initiates lovemaking and she enjoys it. And this man said, next June I will graduate from this college. They're going to give me the responsibility of overseeing 50 pastors in the deep south Kafiwe province. That's where coffee comes from, by the way. Kafiwi province. I'm going there, and every Saturday, every other Saturday, I have a morning with these men. And you know what I'm going to do the first year, Mr. and Mrs. Pot? I'm going to teach them Song of Solomon. So the greatest gift we could probably give, the greatest gift that he could give his people, that he could possibly give in southern Ethiopia. But part of Song of Solomon is... Uh, her initiative and her enjoyment. And some of the marriages that I'm looking at right now, 
That is not true. That is not true. The man has to maneuver or strategize or wait or find out some acceptable little bribe because the woman's not very responsive. I'm just not like that. And all I say to you is that, uh, hey, you can learn. You can learn. And if you refuse to learn, the man will take a second look at that hedge and wonder what in the world is waiting on the other side that could be more enjoyable. So is it his fault? Yeah. But it's also your fault. Because it takes two in the initiative of two. And sometime in the next week, I think it would be a divine mandate that uh, before next Sunday, surprise your husband. I cannot believe you just said that. But uh, it will not take me very long to appreciate what I now believe. (laughs) Okay. Now, we're going to end with, what about singles? What about singles? That's our final thought. Learning leaving skills, cleaving skills, and weaving skills. And what if I can find my right page. Here we go. It concerns me a lot that all the data that I'm uh, aware of, all the the, uh, surveys, questions that I've read, all of them suggest that uh, sexual expectations and sexual mores are pretty much the same among Christian young people as they are among pagan young people. It's pretty much pretty much the same, and the distinctness is gone. Was it hard to wait? Oh, yes, it was hard to wait. The Song of Solomon is all about, now you want, now you're a person with desires and drives and longings, you want, of course you want, but then you wait, and at the end of wanting and waiting, there's a wedding. Wanting, waiting, there's a wedding. And three times in the first part, one, one to three, six. Three times, she says, Solomon, you're the one. Solomon, you're the one. I'm committed to you. Uh, complete uh, nakedness with you and exploring sex for the first time. Uh, a few wins, a few, a few losses. Hey, I'm anticipating this. It's going to be good. You're the right man, but this is not the right time. You're the right man, but this is not the right time. And three times she says, no, no, no. And so the wedding is 3, 6 to 11, day. The wedding night, 4, 1 to 5, 1. And they have amazing sex. And it's partly amazing because they chose to wait. They chose to wait. So what do I say to young people? Do I have some advice? Surprise, I do. I do. Three quick suggestions. That's the, the rather nice thing about this sermon. I'm giving you some things that you can start applying before the next week is over. You can't just say, interesting talk, a little radical, didn't you feel? But it's stuff that you can actually do and say, I wonder if this works. I wonder if this works. Here's my first piece of advice. Is 
whatever date, whatever social activity you're on, you're watching the Impact or the Alouettes or Saturday night, of course, Toronto is on the skating is on the screen every single Saturday, as if it's the only city in the country. Uh, and uh, so we have a date together, and then we have a cup of coffee, go somewhere for uh, uh, something to drink. Um, just can't think of the name just now, but a uh, milkshake, fries, and then you go back to his or her apartment. And I tell you from experience, in the whole dating time, there's not a lot of memorable things, worthwhile things that happen after 12 o'clock. There's not a lot of stuff you want to remember. A lot of stuff that, uh, oh, this is special. This is unusual. Can you wait just a second? I want to write my mom about this. I want to get on the computer and get a message off to my mom. That was special. That's generally not after midnight. So make sure that you're home and not in his place. He's not got an apartment of his own. You're in your separate places after midnight. Second piece of advice is that, as they did on the Song of Solomon, in your entire courtship, until you face each other in black and in white, and the minister pronounces those awesome words for better for worse, richer, poor, sickness, health, all of that. Until then, all of your clothes stay on. All of your clothes stay on. And it's only when the clothes come off that Solomon describes what he sees in great detail in chapter 7, 1 to 10. The detail is there so intimate that he uses two words that no translator dares to use. I've never seen it in one translation but it's so candid about her anatomy that he sees. He's lying in the cushions, and he says from bottom to top. And in that society, like African society, you work from top to bottom. The chapter 10 is from bottom to top. And uh, he says, ah, oh, he's totally blown away. He says, it's, it's wonderful what I see. You should not see that until you can say husband or wife. Husband, wife. And those two names ought to be uh, a great announcement, a welcome, a surprise. It was such a surprise to me that uh, at least once, six weeks or so after the wedding, somebody said to me, so, Hank, how's Mrs. Pot? And I said, well, as far as my, I know, my mother is fine. He said, I wasn't actually talking about your mother. No, there's a new message. Oh, Mrs. Pot, of course. See, it was a surprise to me. So the clothes stay on. And as long as we're candid together. Third one is just avoid with a sheer act of will, grit your teeth if you have to, avoid touching or playing around with unique body parts. There's a lot about you that's the same as it is for her, but there's a lot that is unique for him and unique for her until the wedding night. Leave it alone. Until the wedding night, leave it alone. And it's very interesting to me that right here in front of church, the footprints are not there anymore, but right here in front of church, about 12 years ago, 12 years ago, a young couple um, suddenly had to advance their wedding day dramatically. 
And we all sort of wondered and we dropped a few cautious questions. What's going on here? Yeah, it turned out that they had had sex before the wedding day. They got the order in scripture wrong. It's C, courtship, then M, marriage, and then S, sex. C, M, S. And you don't mess around with God's alphabet. They messed around with God's alphabet. And I said, we're not going to cover this. We're not going to hide it. We're not going to make sure that your reputation is deserved among your community here. And uh, the leaders here, the deacons, about 10 of us, 12 of us at that time, we all said, no, we need to make this uh, uh, caringly, compassionately public. And wow, they agreed. They agreed. And they stood and said, here's what we did, and that's why the wedding is coming much, much sooner. You're all welcome. They looked at each other, then down at the carpet, looked at each other, down at the carpet. I said, okay, now this is your church. The church is going to get involved now. And one by one, the folks all came up, and they greeted them with a hand, with a good hug. I heard some say, you know, I had the same issue, and I wish I had made it more public. It was hidden, and hidden things will come to light. Others came, had nothing to say, but there's a tear in their eyes. And so this young couple saw the tears, and they said, hey, this is not a group of uh, judges who are against us, and they want to straighten us out, and I guess we won't see them at the wedding. No, we're all here together, sinners all, and we all need forgiveness. And one row after another came up to, uh, to welcome them and embrace them as part of the church family. They got married. They're happily married today, I'm told, with two little people, a young boy and a young girl. They're doing well, but they had the courage to go through that public sensing that uh, this church is for them, not against them. That was pretty good. So, my dream... Oh, I was going to tell you one more story. <laughs> oh, you'll, you'll enjoy this one. I'll mention this story. But uh, one of my heroes, a lot of Christian heroes have feet of clay and they've fallen. Um, there's things that people have come to know about me and I'm not taking Hanker seriously as I used to. Hey, I get this. I have feet of clay. But the least clay feet that I have ever come across, and I was at a conference with him, in uh, Lake Louise was Billy Graham. And Billy Graham and his two buddies, Cliff Barrows and George Beverly Shea, the three of them announced and they gave the notices and they, they sang. George Beverly Shea, what a voice. And they sang and then Graham spoke in 1959 to a Los Angeles crusade. Uh, 10,000 people came. 3,000 responded, came to the front for conversion. 3,000. And um, Billy said afterward, uh, Cliff and uh, George, I need to see you because I'm now in more of a spotlight and I'm getting a lot of public attention and Satan is going to step up his attacks. Now, we may have been part of his target chain, but we just advanced several places and we're near the top of his chain. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And they had an evening together in 1959 in Los Angeles and they drew up agreements that all three of them would keep together. The one agreement they came to, and if you hear this, it's an easy response to say, ah, that is so legalistic, so narrow-minded. Come on, we have more confidence in Graham than that. I wouldn't do that. He's my hero. I recommend him to you. He said, after an evening of speaking, 
3,000 normally would respond, and uh, 2.5 have a sticking power in a church, local church somewhere. And he said, when I go to absolutely exhausted and vulnerable and weak, and I go to my room and I hit the button to my seventh floor where I have a, a room, as soon as I push that and I step inside the room and I'm just ready for just sprawling on the bed, calling my wife and getting a decent night of sleep. He said, but as soon as I'm in that elevator shaft and I see a very attractive young lady coming in the same shaft, and she said, would you hit number 11, please? He's on 7, she's on 11. He said, sure. I'd be glad to hit number 11 for you. I'll just step out and you can have the journey all on your own if you like. I'll just catch the next one. He said, because I will not be in any place, elevator shaft or a hotel, dining hall, or the front of a car with a woman who's not my wife. may sound very legalistic to you. It's also very smart. It's very smart. Because my wish for you is that you get married to just the right one. You set some boundaries. You live within the fence, live within the, uh, live within the hedge, live within, and then the sex gets better and better and better. And when you're 65 men, you're 62 women, you go from 65 to 62 and you go to the local second cup and you order on the second cup, a small table in a corner somewhere, nobody's going to bother you, and you order the best milkshake there is. That's a coffee milkshake, by the way. You order a coffee milkshake, and that sits in the middle of the room, and then you ask the girl, could you bring us two straws, please? One coffee milkshake and two straws, and they have eyes only for each other. Hey, I wish that for you. Amen. Father, do give us do give us great joy, great satisfaction as we negotiate the world without sex if we're single and will remain single. The world with sex as we're married and there's a husband and wife in the picture. And help us to receive satisfaction and contentment as we learn to say no, and even more as we learn how to say yes, knowing that the bedrock sitting underneath us is a Jesus who's the heavenly bridegroom, and he loves his bride, and he has died for his bride, and he's going to make sure that that bride makes it home. Because having all of these issues and all the temptations will be gone. We look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.